so in seventh grade, I was on the basketball team at Pete Junior High in Conroe, Texas. And I thought we had a pretty good team until we played Cleveland Junior High from Cleveland, Texas. Uh, I remember we were, we were playing at home in our home gym. We come out for pregame warm-ups, and we look across at these grown men in red and, and yellow jerseys across the court. Y'all, I kid you not, they were throwing alley-oops to each other during warm-ups. Every single guy on their team could get his hands up above the rim. Seventh grade. And so we weren't even warming up. We were just standing there watching them. And I, I, y'all, before the game, we ran back into the, the locker room for a few minutes for last little, you know, adjustments and pep talk. And, we, when, and when we got into the locker room, I got down on my knees and started to pray. And when I was in seventh grade, y'all, I didn't pray about anything when I was in seventh grade. But I was praying hard that night before that game, not even to win. I was just praying that God would help us be respectable out there, you know? <laughs> well, sure enough, y'all, we go out and we win. I'm just kidding. They, yeah, they, <laughs> they beat us 84 to 25. I still remember the score. That's almost a 60-point win. Um, and at the end of the game, in a weird way, I was not that displeased with the 25. I kind of thought, I, I think I had six of those. I thought we did pretty well, considering the competition. Um, isn't it interesting how desperate times so often will lead us to God? Desperate situations drive us to prayer in a way that nothing else can. And I know my basketball story is absolutely trivial. It's meaningless. But I trust that at a very real and deep level... All of us know what it is to pray and to seek God from a desperate place. And, and most often that is how it works. Very few people, it seems, come to, to vibrant faith in Jesus in easy, air-conditioned, comfortable places. Most often we come to Jesus, we're drawn in from a place of despair or grief or weakness we come to recognize how deep our sin is and how much we need forgiveness. We're put in a position where we're beyond our resources financially or we're, we're, something's been torn away from us or a relationship has fallen apart or somebody's died and we get to a very deep down, difficult place and that's when God becomes most real and most evident to us. Well, here in John chapter 4, for the first time so far in the gospel, we witness an event like that. We find a truly desperate person who comes to Jesus in need of a miracle. We know that happens a lot in the Gospels, but it's the first time we see it in John. We find a man today whose son is on the brink of death. A man who brings his great need to the feet of Jesus. Jesus, at this point, is his only possible hope. But we also see, ultimately in this story, a man whose whole family is transformed by the grace of God that comes to them in their place of deepest need. So as we read this scripture today, at the end of John 4, it's not very long, it's actually very simple. It takes about 30 seconds to read it. But there's really a lot going on here. Now as we look in the scripture, if you weren't here the last two weeks, that's okay. But the context here, Jesus has just spent time, about two or three days, in the land of Samaria. The Samaritans who were the racial and religious outcasts. The disciples would not have wanted to be in Samaria, but Jesus had them there on purpose. And Jesus saw his first really great fruitful ministry. 
The people of Samaria received him and believed in him as Savior. That's what's just happened. As we look at John 4, verse 43 now. After those two days in Samaria, Jesus went forth from there into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast. For they themselves also went to the feast. Okay, so Jesus goes into Galilee. Galilee is the place where Jesus was raised. Nazareth is part of Galilee. So he's leaving Samaria, going north. He's left Judea in the south. He's going north back to his home country. And that's what makes verse 44 a little odd. If you look at, again at verse 44 in your Bible, Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So why is he going there? You know, if, you, if we actually read through the whole Bible, we'll see, especially in the prophets, so often the prophets were rejected most harshly by their own people, by their own countrymen, their own, their own townspeople. And Jesus was no exception. In the Gospels, it happens multiple times. Jesus is doing ministry, he's teaching, and people very snidely throw these, these insults at him. Wait a minute. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this the man from Nazareth? Can any good thing come from there? Isn't this the man who, who we know his brothers and his mother? Right? We grew up around this guy. How can he be anybody? And he saw that's this strange irony here. Because we might be tempted to think that the people who knew Jesus the best would honor him the most. But it wasn't that way. Earlier in John chapter 1, John tells us that Jesus came to his own people and those who were his own did not receive him. So this is an odd twist. Jesus has been very well received by the Samaritans, the outsiders, but he knows he's going to experience resistance from his own countrymen. He prophesied it. Okay, well then we get to the very next verse, verse 45, and we take another odd turn. <laughs> the people of Galilee, John says, received him favorably. They're happy to see Jesus. So where's, is there a contradiction? Notice what John says. They received him. Why? Because they witnessed the things he performed at the Passover feast in Jerusalem. Now that is a callback to chapter 2. At the end of chapter 2, when Jesus went into Jerusalem, you remember he flipped the tables over in the temple and said, this, this is my father's house, and you've turned it into a a robber's den. Um, then what happens next? And here's what John is trying to connect us to. This is from John chapter 2, now, verse 23. When Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. All right, so here's the connection. John says these people in Galilee are some of the same people who were there in Jerusalem at the end of chapter 2. They're receiving Jesus now based on what they saw him do. They have a form of belief in Jesus built upon witnessing his miracles. 
But Jesus, on his part, is not entrusting himself to them because he knows their hearts. Now, by contrast, we saw this last week. The Samaritans, the outsiders, they receive Jesus as Savior based on his words and his testimony, not on his miracles. John doesn't tell us that Jesus performed any miracles in Samaria. But his own countrymen receive him differently. They're happy he's there, but it's not because they view him as the Savior. It's because he's the miracle worker. He's the healer. They're impressed. They're hopeful, but they don't yet view him the way they should. And so Jesus does not consider that they are really honoring him, even though they're receiving him with kindness. And that helps. If we understand that interesting dynamic there, it helps us to understand the rest of this story. Look at what happens here. Verse 46. Therefore Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring Jesus to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. We have a royal official. This is an important person. He was probably part of the, uh, the household of Herod Antipas, who was not a nice guy, was not held in high regard by the Jews. But as a royal official, he would have held a lot of clout. Well, he comes to Jesus here with a great and urgent need. It has nothing to do with his position. He doesn't bring up his position. He's desperate. And John tells us why. About 20 miles away in Capernaum, this man's son is on his deathbed. We don't know how old the son is or how long he's been sick, but he's just barely hanging on. And y'all, unless you've been in this kind of position, I, I haven't, it's, it's hard for us to fathom the depth of helplessness and despair that this father had to have been feeling. I've been in some difficult positions in my life, but I've never been in this one right here. And so if you have, you know just how, how confused and, and teary and weepy, and just there's no telling how defeated this man is. There's no telling, perhaps, how many other resources he's tried, how many doctors he's tried to no avail. Jesus is clearly this man's only hope. And so when he hears that Jesus has left Judea and come back into Galilee, he's stationed in Cana, this man hustles the 20-mile journey to see him and begs him to come. You've got to come with me and heal my son. Please see to it that he doesn't die. So naturally, Jesus is very compassionate and runs to Capernaum and takes care of business. That's not how the story reads. And here's where it gets really confusing and maybe even a little maddening. Look at verse 48. So Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Is that as harsh as it sounds? I mean, here we've got this poor man pleading for his son's life. There's no ulterior motive here. He's desperate. And Jesus rebukes him? What's going on? Now, two things that would help us, I think, in this moment. First, we understand Jesus is not indifferent to this man's need, he does not diminish the son's illness. He's going to heal him. Jesus always knew what he intended to do beforehand 
He was going to heal him, and he did heal him. We'll see that in a minute. But then second, you notice this, Jesus is speaking to the man, but in the plural. And my hope is that whatever your Bible translation is, that it shows you the plural. It doesn't just say you, because we take you to be singular. But this here is y'all. Unless you people, he's talking about all of the Galileans in this case, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. This is a targeted rebuke. It's not just for this poor, helpless man. It's for everybody who's listening in and everybody who will read later on. Uh, It still asks the question for us, though, why would Jesus take this opportunity, such a sensitive moment, to give a rebuke? Wouldn't he want to just take care of the issue compassionately, mercifully, then find a way to make his point? But y'all, I want to... Jesus... If we read the Gospels, he's always doing things that are strange and counterintuitive to us. He doesn't always say what we would expect or act in the way that we would expect. And so this is just another example of Jesus trying to communicate his ultimate purpose and trying to reach into the heart that he cared more about the heart of the people than he did about individual circumstances. And I don't, I don't say that to diminish the circumstance. It was a heavy and needy moment. Yes, but Jesus didn't just come to grant healing here and there. Jesus came to give himself as a ransom for sinners so that we might receive him and have life in his name, not an improved life, not a healed physical body in this life only, but life eternal. And, you know, the Gospel of John is making this point for us over and over again. And so even though Jesus knows what he's about to do, he is going to grant the miracle, yes, But the miracle is meant to point to something greater. That's why John and Jesus call it a sign. It's a sign that's meant to point to the one who performs it. The miracle is meant to point to Jesus and the eternal life he gives us by his grace. And so in this moment, Jesus is exposing an issue that the Father needed to hear, yes, but so do we that people who come to Jesus for the sake of his signs will likely miss him as Savior. They're coming to Jesus for what he might give with his hand, but they're missing who he is in his desire to save. And y'all, this was not unique to Jesus in his own ministry. This was the case in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And Paul speaks this very powerfully in 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, he speaks of the kinds of people who stumble when they hear the gospel, who do not receive the gospel, and he tells us why. The two dominant people groups. This is 1 Corinthians 1, 22. Paul says, indeed, Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Paul ran into this in his own ministry. No matter who he talked to, if they were Jewish people, they were always asking for signs, miraculous works of God to prove, to validate the message. The Greeks, the Gentiles, they were seeking wisdom, philosophy. Show us how this makes sense in a way that's better than what we believe. 
Either way, Paul says, when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, they've got these hurdles that stand between them. The Gentiles view it as foolishness. There's no philosophy there. A crucified Messiah? They laughed. And the Jews said, no, we won't believe it unless you can prove it, prove it, prove it to us. You know what's interesting about that? We'll see it when we get to John chapter 12. Though Jesus performed a great many signs in the presence of the people, they would not believe. They asked for signs, and yet when they saw them, they whistled right past them. Nothing was good enough. And so that's why Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. We're not here to give the people what they're asking for. We're showing them what Christ has done. And to those who are the called, to those who have faith in Christ, he is the power and the wisdom of God. We don't need anything else. We've got Christ. That, y'all, that's what Jesus is rebuking here in John 4. His own countrymen, the Jews of Galilee, are fixated on the signs rather than the person. And only those who have faith can understand the difference. So Paul says we preach Christ crucified. Jesus wants us to see life is found only in him and not merely in what he can give or do. And so even in this father's most sensitive, dire, desperate moment, Jesus wants him to recognize the greater purpose, the greater need. Now look at how this develops, and it really does develop wonderfully here. This is an awesome thing that ought to encourage us as we see how this father comes along. Verse 49, the royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. Now remember the rebuke we just saw. Unless you see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. But now Jesus is forcing the issue on this man. He doesn't say, okay, I'll come and I'll lay hands on him and you'll see my power. He says, go. Your son lives. Trust me, go home and trust me that my mercy has already been delivered. Believe my word without seeing the sign with your own eyes. He's forcing the issue. And the man responds. He believes the word Jesus spoke. And he started off. Now we're getting somewhere. This man did not come to Jesus as a believer initially. It's obvious. But something's happening here in his heart as hard as it may have been to take his word for it and head back the 20-mile journey home. That's exactly what he does. And now look at the outcome, verse 51. As he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. They said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives, and he himself believed, and his whole household. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. I told you that's a short story, it's a simple story. But just consider how full of awesome mercy and grace and power that story is. Think about the mercy of Jesus who did not insist that the man get all things figured out first. 
get all his ducks in a row first, then I'll heal. Jesus did not heal that boy as a reward for the father's great faith. He healed him before the father believed and obeyed. That's mercy. That's grace. And then think about the power of Jesus who can command the healing from a distance. He doesn't need to be in the room. See, that was the, that was the perception. And we, don't, we couldn't blame the guy for thinking this way. You've got to come. You've got to touch him. You've got to be there. Only then, and only possibly then, can the healing take place. And Jesus has no such restraints. He's powerful in that precise moment. Your son lives, and he lived in that very hour. And then consider the awesome purpose of God through this. Remember the greater purpose. And this is what happens when the royal official recognizes what Jesus Christ has done, and more than that, who Jesus is, he himself believed, and his whole household, the whole family, including the sick and now healed son, the whole family came to know Jesus through this event. They received more than a sign. They received a Savior. That was Jesus' hope. That's his point. That's his desire. The signs point to the Savior, and they believed. Now, y'all, as we think about this story, again, it's short, it's simple, but there are some really heavy and significant layers to it. And I hope we've come to see those for ourselves as we walk through it. But two things I want to draw out as we now around the corner here that would be for us implications or applications, things that we ought to see and I hope will stick with us. The first is just, as I was studying this scripture this week, the rebuke continued to come back to me. It seems so strange, so out of place. As we picture Jesus, we don't really think of him this way. That when we come to him in tears, he looks at us with stern eyes, the way he does in verse 43. But y'all, there's a purpose there for us. When Jesus offers that rebuke in verse 43, he's communicating something that we've got to take to heart. There is a kind of religion that uses God as a means to an end. Jesus rebuked people who valued his signs over his words. They sought his miracles, but they would not submit their life to him. And y'all, we could say, and I think it's true, this is the most common form of religion in the world. This is the most common form of religion there is. We come to God ultimately to get something from God, not for God himself. We come to God to get something from his hand, but we do not seek his face. And this is one of the surest ways to be a religious person and yet miss Jesus altogether. And so, y'all, this is always a question that's worth asking of our own hearts. It's rhetorical, it's personal, but I want to hand it to you, and I want you to sit in it, because I've got to sit in it too. Ask this of our own hearts. Are there desires and ambitions in me that are more valuable to me than Jesus is? Are there desires and ambitions in my heart that I treasure more highly than God? And it could be many things we could put, put in the blank there. It could be a love relationship. 
It could be the approval of other people. It might be financial security or success. It could be the happiness of my own children. But the human heart, y'all, this is what's called idolatry, and it's in every heart without fail. The temptation is there that anything I treasure more than God, I'm always going to have the temptation to use God to get it. And I will pray, and I might even read my Bible, and I will come to church, and I'll try to live right, ultimately because I want God to be in my debt, and he owes me the thing I really want. Now, I know it sounds crass and terrible to say it like that, but that's the temptation of every human heart, that there's always potentially something I really want, and perhaps if I do what God wants me to do, he'll give it to me. And in that case, we're not loving God for God himself. We're loving God to get something from his hand. And y'all, God doesn't play that game. Jesus would not perform signs simply to give the people what they wanted, what they were after, not to satisfy their curiosity or to impress them. Because Jesus' heart, his desire, is that we know him and trust him and follow him and glorify him him alone, even if the things we want don't come from his hand, we receive the far greater gift. We receive relationship with Christ. And so, y'all, may it never be said of us that unless we see and receive the things we really want, we simply will not believe. That is half-hearted religion, and we never actually come to know him. We're simply looking for something from him. Let that be a warning to us. Let that be a warning to my own heart. But then secondly, and I'm not, we're not going to close here and just leave burden down, because that's not how the story unfolds. Think about how the thing unfolds. Jesus is much more gracious than we know to meet us in our deepest need. The Father does not come to Jesus as a believer. That's not the place he begins. And so when Jesus speaks those words of rebuke, those heavy difficult words, you have to imagine that in the Father's mind, he's thinking, oh no, he's not coming. I don't have the right kind of faith. I don't have enough faith. Whatever it is, I've fallen short. Jesus seems to be put off by the, the request at all. He's not coming. My son's dead. In that moment, I, surely the Father is thinking, he's not going to do it. But then to the Father's surprise, Jesus says, go, your son lives. He doesn't say, go, and your son will live. He doesn't require the man to do anything in that case. He simply says, trust me and go on home. I don't need to make the trip with you. It's done. And it was Jesus who said it, and it was Jesus who fulfilled it, exactly as he said. Y'all, the miracle was not given as a reward. Jesus doesn't say, if you really believe in me, then I'll heal your son. He heals him that very hour and simply says, trust me, go home. Um, Y'all, it's obvious from this story, Jesus is not pleased with half-hearted belief. And that's not what we should take away, that even if I don't really love the Lord, he'll still do what I want. No, he's not pleased with the reception he received in his home country. Favorable as it appeared on the surface, they weren't really concerned with him. 
and his salvation. And yet, even faced with that blockade in front of him, Jesus' grace abounds. He doesn't punish them or withhold from them. He's gracious. And y'all, this should be an encouragement to us. If you're the kind of person right now, you know you don't have all your spiritual ducks in a row. You know you're not living right in the way that you ought to be living. You know that, that, that um, you haven't um, earned your way in here today. Of course, none of us have. But this idea that says, I've got to do enough for God in order for God to accept me. I've got to get my life right, or I've got to pray a certain way, or show up to church, and then God will open the door to me as if he rewards us. That's not how grace works. Grace is not a reward. Grace is a gift. Jesus takes this desperate man just as he is, and he pours out his mercy upon him and his family. And of course, it's that display of grace that brings them life, not just a temporary healing. It's crazy to consider the fact that this boy who was healed eventually died. Just like everybody Jesus healed, they died eventually. The healing was good and wonderful and gracious, but it was only temporary. The far greater, more eternal reality has now set in. The family has come to know Christ. Jesus is more gracious than we believe possible. And so often it's in times of desperation that we find it to be true. And so, y'all, I can say this for a fact. I don't have to know you to know this is true. Nobody would ever choose to be in a position like this man. None of us would ever consciously say, I want to be pushed beyond all my resources, desperate and completely without anything, with no hope in the world. Y'all, nobody ever wants to find themselves in that kind of place, and yet that's the place so often where we come to recognize that's the place where Jesus is our truest hope, our only hope. And I'll say this to y'all, whether you're in a desperate place or a comfortable place right now, the truth remains the same, that Jesus is our only hope. But God is not afraid to put us in places where it becomes bright and vivid and clear, places that are so dark that the only glimmer of light we see is the divine light of Jesus Christ. There are no other resources that will do. And it's not altogether a bad thing if God gives us that kind of despair, provided that we see Christ and trust him in it. And so I want to say this to you. If you are right now in a place of desperation, whether it be relationship or financial or any other way, if you're in a place of despair right now, the invitation is open to look to a Savior, a Savior who knows you down to the very bottom, including all your needs. He created you, and he calls you to himself. Jesus said, if you are weary or heavy burdened, come to me to find rest. The invitation is there for us. And I want to say this also, that you have a church family that God has given you to walk with you and encourage you in your despair, if you'll let us. Jesus is the hero here. He's the only truly sufficient one, of course, but he's given us people. He's given us a household, a family, 
to walk with one another and bear one another's burdens. And so don't experience despair alone if you don't have to. We're here. Let us know. Pick up the phone today and make it known that you need some help. We'll help you the best we can. But y'all, as we close, there's a... I mentioned this is true no matter what, whether you're comfortable right now or despairing right now. Something's true for all of us, and it's got to be said. I can't end the sermon without it. There is a desperate need that we all share. There's a desperate need that we have no cure for. And it doesn't matter. Circumstances make no difference in this. It's simply true of our lives and our hearts. The Scripture says that we are sinners in desperate need of forgiveness and redemption. And I honestly pray that we would feel this sense of despair and not be afraid of it. We don't have to go looking for it. The Spirit of God will convict our hearts. If I know my own heart, if I know the thoughts that really circulate in my mind, if I know my past and all my regrets, if you know yourself, then there ought to be a very heavy, thick, dark cloud of despair knowing that what I've done and what I deserve I can't possibly atone for. We're meant to know what that feels like. And in that sense, y'all, this despair is a matter of life and death, far greater than any physical or circumstantial reality. And so if we feel that as we should, then we should also know that the greatest grace Jesus can give, he's already given. Jesus Christ laid down his own life, given for us as a perfect sacrifice in the place of sinners like me and you. And because Jesus died on a cross, our deepest need, our truest, most despairing need is met by His infinite mercy. There is more grace in Christ than there is sin in you. One of the old Puritans said that. There's more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. And so, y'all, if you're here right now, and in your, des- your desperation, you know what you are, you know where you've been, and there's this sense in which you say, oh, you know, I can manage this. I can overcome this. I can get right. We can't, and we don't have to. Our sin has resulted in death, but only Christ can make us alive. And that's exactly what he's done in laying himself down and in God raising him again. If you're desperate for forgiveness and redemption and life, then Jesus Christ has come. And we may find what we need in him alone. It is by grace that we are saved through faith, not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. And my prayer for us is that we would trust him today as Savior. May it never be that we seek God's hand and miss His face. Because it is the face of the glory of Jesus Christ that is revealed to us when we see Him for who He really is. Not merely a sign giver, but a loving Savior. Let's pray. Father, let it be true of us these words we're about to sing. Just as I am, 
without one plea. But that thy blood was shed for me. And that thou bidst me come to thee. O Lamb of God, I come. I come. Father, where we despair of even life right now, perhaps we're that far gone and we barely made it here. Or if we're despairing of our own sinfulness right now, filled with regret and guilt and shame, Father, shine the light of your Son, Jesus Christ, into the darkness and bid us come. We have life in his name by faith in him. Father, I do pray for healing this morning for those who are sick, for those whom we love that are somewhere else right now and sick. That, Lord, by your power and grace, you may speak a word and heal. And that we would have the courage to ask, to come, and the faith to believe. And I pray also, Lord, that even beyond any temporary thing, that you would heal the sinner's soul today. Those who have tried to manage sin or overcome sin or have simply given up that we would see the man upon the cross whose blood was shed and trusting him, Lord, that you would give us life now and forever. What a grace we've been given. Father, let it fill our hearts as we sing in Christ's name. Amen.